Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends, Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Greetings and welcome back to the Dollars and Sensibilities podcast. I am your host, Bill McBride, here with my good friend and co-host, Andrew Martz. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Today, we are going to talk about safety investing. What does that mean? Did I just coin that term? I don't know. But it's it's all about the investments that we hear in the news or from friends, safe, right? This is only episode 12 and you've already coined five terms. <laughs> I'm a, I can't wait till our hundredth episode anniversary. I'm going to run. I'm you'll have, run you'll have a dictionary of coined terms. <laughs> anyway, safety investing. I can't wait. This is a great topic. Safety investing. So I, I just want to dig right in because it's a big topic, but I, I think I've got three different safe investments. I mean, we hear from our clients all the time, right? I, I want something safe, right? But what they say is I want FDIC insured. I want gold or I want treasuries because I heard they're safe. We're, we're debunking the word safety today. I think we're not going to say that they aren't safe, but safety is a relative term. And we'll get into that into the end. I don't so. know if it's much debunking as it is just let's bring a little bit of perspective because safety in and of itself is a relative term. Safe compared to what? Like, what are we right? Like it's safe compared to getting on the highway and driving in, in Los Angeles. It's safe compared to this in the, in the financial markets, safety, there are certain areas, right? You alluded FDIC insurance banks, like this is safe. Yeah. I, I hear this so often where people confuse what they're doing and really in how they're interpreting it for what it means for their own lifestyle and what they're, how it aligns with their goals. So it, it, well, the word safety evokes a feeling. Right. And we all want to feel safe. Now, there there's some people out there that would probably, you know, trade heavily uh, or have uh, concentrated positions in their portfolios. And they go, yeah, I, they're, the bravado is that, you know, I don't need safety. Right. You know, I, I know. And, and all that. so we're not really talking about that today. We're talking about the people who are here. Hey, this is a safe investment. That's what I want. Right. And what are they what are they giving up for that safety? And is the safety exactly what they think it is, right? So number one, FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, insures bank deposits currently up to $250,000 per person, per institution. I love the history of the FDIC because it's something that most people don't address. Again, going back to safety, we feel safe when we hear those letters, FDIC, right? My money's in the bank, Money in the bank is a, a catchphrase, a, a coin term that I didn't coin. So all puns aside, FDIC is the corporation that insures your bank deposit. Now, how did they come about and why are they here and what are they doing? The FDIC was started by, I'll bring out my East Coast accent, Roosevelt, back in 1933 as part of the New Deal. So during the Great Depression, there was, of course, a run on the banks. 
everybody went to the bank to get their money out all at one time. That's what caused a, uh, a collapse of the American banking system. Right. Roosevelt said, hey, okay, we got we to gotta do something to instill a feeling of safety in people. He started the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now it's a corporation, right? That's important to, to note, mm -hmm. okay? A corporation that says, hey, if you are a member bank of the FDIC and you want to put a sign on your door that says, hey, your deposits are insured by the FDIC, well, you can do so, but you have to give us basically insurance money. The difference is, though, and I think this is this is something most people don't realize when or they don't want to dig into it. Right. Because it's it's an intricacy of, of how insurance companies work. You insure your car. You give the insurance company two hundred dollars a month. And if you don't have an accident, the insurance company has two hundred dollars a month. Correct. Right. The FDIC, on the other hand, the member banks give a very small portion of let's say your $100,000 deposit into a savings account at the member bank. The FDIC says, all right, give us $5 for every $100,000, right? And in return, you get to put the sticker on your door with a eagle and a fig leaf or an olive branch and your bank depositors are going to feel safe. That's all well and good, right? And it's worked, right? It's worked since 1933, since it started. People feel safe with their FDIC bank deposits. Here's really, I think what's really cool about just this whole idea and, and the story you're telling about the origins of the FDIC. It speaks to American culture. So think about the time and the, the contextual environment of when this was all started. We're coming out of a wartime. We're coming out of, you know, on the heels of the Great Depression. The, the country financially is unstable. You now have... FDR, the New Deal. Okay, we can put this stick, sticker on our door. There is faith and confidence brought back into the banking system. Right. Now, think about people who at that time in the 30s and 40s were 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And their parents were fighting to put bread on the table and were fighting to get a, a can of Campbell's soup and were told and were taught, hey, you got to make sure you got a little something at home. Make sure you got a little something tucked away. And now the banks are going to take care of us and your money is safe at the bank. And that was bred into them for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Right. You came into this business in the 90s. Right. In the 90s, as you are now helping retirees, those retirees who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s were the same 10-year-olds back in the day that saw their parents fighting for bread and soup and were trying to make sure their money was safe. So their idea of the banks are my safe haven has been in, ingrained in them literally since they were children. Right. Yeah. And, and, and not to mention over the course of the thirties and forties, the, the only media outlet was radio. Right. right. So you had the fireside chats and you had things like that. And this is all you had to tune into beside the newspaper. Right. And, and the newspaper published the news back then, allegedly. Right. <laughs> so if there was no spin on it, but if you got a uh, a story from from the White House about the banking state of the banking system, that was word is bond, and there you go. That that's all there was to it, right? There wasn't looking into it anymore. Also, there wasn't as many different securities instruments. There wasn't as many banks as there are today. There's so, there's over fifty two hundred FDIC member banks today, which is 
also remember, listeners, that does not include things like credit unions right. and and non-member banks. First of all, think about that. 5,200 banks, that's not just your, your big banks you see on every single corner around the country, right? Chase and Wells and Bank of America and City and blah, blah, blah. But there's like literally thousands of other smaller regional banks. And if you're listening to this in Kentucky or over in Connecticut, you know, you have your your two or three branch regional banks, look on the door the next time you walk in, see if that's an FDIC member bank. Likely they are. Right, right. And and certainly in 2008, which we're going to get into in a second, 2008 is when some of them started falling by the wayside. And then there was a need to differentiate between FDIC member banks and non-member banks, right? For sure. So let's get into that. So 2008. 2008 comes. We're in the middle of a banking crisis. You are right. You are in the banks yes. at the time. So I was, um, you know, my history goes back uh, largely in the bank brokerage, meaning that I would sit in a bank branch and I was the financial advisor, right? So I didn't handle any of the banking items or uh, needs for customers. So I handled the investment needs. So one of the things that I often heard was, hey, Bill, you know, I want FDIC insured. Uh, savings account or a CD. Okay, go talk to that guy over there, the the banker, right? Uh, I just do the portfolio management, et cetera, et cetera. But where, where I think um, the, the the real story here is, and it, it was, I remember it like it was yesterday. In 2008, Washington Mutual was one of the largest banks in California. During the mortgage crisis, a lot of banks started going under. So now remember, the FDIC is taking and I'm just using arbitrary numbers, $5 for every 100,000, right? Not like your state farm and your all state that take your insurance premiums and have that as an asset. FDIC has leveraged those stickers on the door with a very small portion of your actual assets. So when it hit the fan and the banks, there started to be a run on the banks, right? Which the new deal and the FDIC was supposed to prevent the FDIC was called in to say, hey, we're going to make your deposits whole. You can line up around the block. We're the federal government. We're going to, we got your back. We're going to give you that check up to, at the time, the limits were $100,000 per titling, per person, per institution. Mm -hmm. Back to that fateful, I think it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I'm sitting there at a Washington Mutual branch. Everybody had left. And... You know, it was just, it was, it was a wild time. Got a call from the boss and he said, Bill, Washington Mutual is going under. Now I know at this point that about 29 other banks had already gone under. And if you think about that, 29 banks, let's just say a billion in deposits each, that's a lot of money for a corporation like the FDIC to come up with. So I'm going, okay, well, Washington Mutuals, this is the big one, right? We're, this is a big bank. I said, well, what do I do? Do I go home? Am I fired? Do I have a job? And he said, eh, stick around. There's some stuff happening. What happened, and I think this was in the movie, The Big Short or Too Big to Fail, one of those movies. What happened two hours later was I got a call and I was told, Bill, you're now an employee of J.P. Morgan Chase. I said, Okay. I don't have to change my uh, the color of my suits. They're both you know, blue themed like Washington Mutual. That's great. Okay, I got a job. What does it mean for depositors? And, and what are the repercussions? And, and why did that happen, right? The bank fails. The FDIC, piece, FDIC is supposed to come in and bail them out. A bank as large as Washington Mutual, though, they couldn't. That was the bottom line. They couldn't bail them out. They didn't have the money. There was so many billions of dollars 
with Washington Mutual depositors that it was scary. And this wasn't in the news. It was on, again, in the movie, there was a little blurb about it, but JP Morgan, CEO of JP, uh, I'm sorry, JP Morgan CEO. Yeah. Dame, Jamie Dimon at the time, the FDIC said, Hey, Jamie, you want a bank in California? We'll give it to you for pennies on the dollar because we can't bail Washington Mutual out. So if you take them on as part of Chase Bank, then, you know, nobody knows any better and everybody's happy and safe and they're still quote unquote FDIC insured, right? So that's what happened. Um, it was, you know, it was a scary time. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the FDIC has limits, right? You, you can't just say, okay, you know, if, if everybody in the United States lined up around the corner from their local bank to get $100 bills out, it's, it's over, right? It's game over. I don't think that's going to happen, right? And that's what people are worried about. And that's where safety goes to the extreme, right? So when we're talking about the zombie apocalypse, right, where everybody's lined up around the corner, your dollar bills and $100 bills don't do any good for you. Yeah, what's really interesting, so I'm listening to your story and I remember vividly where I was when all of that was taking place. So while you were out here on, on the left coast with Washington Mutual, I was on the right coast in New York with Chase and <laughs> hearing the news. So I, I had recently left Wall Street. I, I joined up with, with Chase at that time, you know, in a similar role working in the bank centers, which is eventually how we came to meet. And the news is coming on. You're watching. I don't know if people remember this. In, in 2007, 2008, think about this, 5,200 member, member FDIC banks today. There was over a thousand banks that failed. And there was as many as three to 400 banks failing in 2009 and still in 2010. Now by 2010, things had started to like look up and okay, we, we got past some of the like devastating stuff, but we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're recovering from this, but there were still small regional banks in parts of Florida in the middle of the country in Indiana that were just still going out of business. To your point, Washington Mutual was one of the largest and there was many kind of highlighted examples in that period of time. Yeah. But that would have been kind of the, the straw that broke the financial market back, right? That, right? that would have been devastating. We would have lost a tremendous amount of confidence after the fail of Lehman Brothers, there was already so much skepticism about just the health of the financial markets. That's when, to your story, JP Morgan Chase came in and acquired Washington Mutual and eventually brought me out, out to Los Angeles. Yeah. But what's interesting about that story is there were people, not Washington Mutual customers, not Chase customers, but there were banking customers who had hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars at banks who were not taken over by JP Morgan or who were not taken over by Bank of America, one of the other big banks at the time, right. who only received back $100,000 of their money, even though they had $500,000. And over the years would get small incremental pieces back as the government tried to sort out you know, the assets of the bank in, in probate court. We hadn't seen anything like that really since the 1930s. Right. And that's what brought this heightened awareness of, I need my FDIC protection, but also it started to question, well, what the heck does that even mean? Well, the, you, got, you ready for this analogy? FDIC was created as a shark net in a swimming pool. It was supposed to be there because it would never be needed, which, you know, luckily they, they made it out. They made it out without getting any, uh, any real bad press or having people feel 
unsafe with the FDIC. Well, not everybody. Not everybody made it out. There, there are still people today who have not recouped dollars they had sitting in FDIC member banks no. in 2008, 9, and 10. No, agreed. When I say they, I mean the FDIC, right? So the FDIC is still alive and well today, and people still have the belief that putting your money in an FDIC insured account is a safe investment. Now, so uh, the only the only argument I would make to that is, yes, the FDIC is still intact. Yes, people still have confidence of it, but with greater skepticism. And where does the skeptic skepticism come? My generation, right? And younger. So now people are like, well, what do I need to go to that brick and mortar bank? They're banking with online institutions. They're banking with apps. Right. So now this idea of how do we transact and where is my money safe and accessible? Again, back to this is built into the fabric of American culture. It's different. It's different for every generation. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's, uh, let's move on to number two, yeah? Gold. We hear this all the time, right? And, and especially going back to that 2000, 2007, 2008 time, gold. I heard a lot of people saying, Bill, whenever the market takes, takes a dive, right? People go, Bill, you know, should I buy gold? I, I heard it this morning. <laughs> I, I, I hear it. When people, get, least, when people get nervous about right. the stability of the American economy, right. specifically the U.S. dollar, yes. all of a sudden gold starts to come back into the conversation. Or, or the stock market. Now, it's a, I love that you said it comes back into the conversation. Not it comes back into the picture because that's the, that's the perception, right? So people will say that to us when the market goes down. And the understanding that people have of, of gold and its relation to the stock market is that it's an inverse relation, right? So it's just not true, right? So if, if we look back to, you know, the early 70s when we kind of went off the gold standard and gold prices, you know, we're looking at the different disparity of prices. I, let, let's fast forward. I, I love this newest commercial about the gold price where the guy says, hey, if you bought gold five years ago, it was $1,000 an ounce, and now it's $1,800. That's an 80% return. So going back to the episode of lies, damn lies and statistics, right? Yeah, that, that guy's right. But if you go back eight years, you know, and allegedly any good investment is going to return more over a longer period. If you go back eight years, guess what gold price was? $1,800 an ounce, right? So it's, it's a little manipulative for these people that buy and sell gold and or commodities traders or, or whatever, whatever you want to call them, the gold stores. It's a little manipulative to give a specific time period and have people believe that that's the, a reasonable expectation they can, they can get for their money. Yeah, I've always seen gold from an investment standpoint as like a hedge against the U.S. dollar, right? So this, this right. becomes like a portion of anybody's portfolio for risk control. How much though? Three percent. Yeah, no, less, more than, no more than five. Less than me. yeah, less than five. Yeah, everyone's different, but that would be just kind of my general catch-all. I'm not trying to give catch-all advice. That's not for everybody. I'm just saying in general that would kind of be sure. a realistic range. What happens is gold has become a speculation investment over the years, and to be able to invest in actual gold, you can go down to the pawn shop. You can buy gold coins. You can store them in, in your you know your your safe or whatever at your home. But to buy any amount of gold in bulk, gold bullion, gold bricks, you have to store this somewhere. And there's very few banks that will, will store this. There are banks in New York who will do this, they have a very secure vaults. But then people forget that 
that type of gold investing is for the ultra wealthy. And normally it's not for individuals, so it is for for ultra wealthy individuals. Right. It's mainly going to be for other sovereign governments who are buying gold from the US or other parties. It's going to be for big giant endowments or it's going to be for large investment firms who are buying it in bulk to back up some sort of paper gold that they are now offering to investors. So we've seen gold ETFs, something like GLD have become very, very popular because it's a liquid and accessible investment. You can buy GLD with a hundred bucks. You don't need big sums of money and it's very cheap to access that through anything, Robinhood or any other trading platform. And the problem is that it has now become this more volatile asset. So people are thinking, oh, I need to fly, fly to this investment during times of uncertainty for safety. Right. But he- here's what happened. So gold is up 24%, give or take, year to date, right? But let's follow kind of what has happened throughout the year. It was up 12% and then the pandemic hit and it was down 13% and then it's recovered. In the last two weeks, it's been down seven and a half, seven, eight percent or so. Right. So we see this very volatile run. And if you you pull the chart out a little bit for a longer time horizon, five years, 10 years and beyond, you see this thing is kind of all over the place, right? Sure. It, it got really popular back in 08, uh, 09 when things were really uncertain, mm-hmm. you know, rose to, to meteoric prices and came back down as right. The economy, you know, started to to recover and, and grow again. People look at this and they want it for a very specific. Per- hey, this is gonna this is gonna be stable. It's gonna hold the value of my money, of my dollar, of whatever. They want to exchange dollars for gold because that's gonna be safer. But everything is denoted, right? The the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency, so that is the benchmark. It's not gold anymore. Right. So if you're concerned that the value of the dollar is going to deflate, well, what will happen is the prices of homes will probably slow down or even decrease, and the prices at stores in different places will probably slow down because as as the economy slows, businesses are struggling to attract customers to their services and buy their goods. As the dollar rises in price, everything else is going to get more expensive. So the dollar becomes the relative basis for everything else. Right, so what what you're touching on is the tangibility of gold, right? And going back to the, the theme of this podcast is the feeling of safety, okay? So, so there's really two reasons why the individual investor buys gold, right? Number one is because they feel it's safe. It's tangible, you can touch it. And there's a feeling of safety with that, right? And again, you know, I, I know I use this, this term a lot, the zombie apocalypse, but we feel that if the end of days comes, that if we have a satchel with a bunch of gold doubloons in it, we're going to be better off than the guy next door that doesn't that has U.S. dollars. Well, I, I hear it a lot in the safety conversation when people are looking at investments, whether it's a diversified portfolio, a stock portfolio, whatever the investment is, and they'll say, "All right, well, what's the chance that like this thing goes to zero? And let's be honest, if we're looking at a well diversified portfolio, disclaimer: anything can happen. There's always risk. Nothing in life is guaranteed. And their alternative is, well, I could just put it into this CD because that's with the bank and I can get you know half a percent or one percent, and it's FDIC insured, right? And to your point, Well, if everything in that investment portfolio goes to zero and the world goes to hell in a handbasket, your $100,000 CD at the bank earning a half percent is also going to be worth bupkis. Right. (laughs) Zero. Right. It's like if that if that is your outlook, if your belief is that the world is in such peril 
and that company, global companies around the world, right? The largest corporations that have ever existed are going to start to fail and no longer sell products and services to anybody, then yes, you are right. You should not buy into the largest stocks in the S&P 500, but you also shouldn't put your money in, in the bank. You should buy canned goods. You should buy seeds. You should buy guns and yeah, ammo yeah. because I was just gonna say that's going to be a better inv investment for your apocalyptic out view of the world. So that, and that's where people, I think, start to get to something like, oh, well, I, I guess that's probably not realistic. Of course, it's not realistic. Right. Is it a possibility? Sure. It's a fraction of a percent possibility. Right. And toilet paper. Just mind you, that's important, right? Toilet paper, canned goods, uh, ammunition, and all that, and 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 that's that's the first reason why people get into a quote unquote safe investment like gold. But the second reason is is when we have this conversation. You know, I know you you've probably had it as many times as I have, where you talk to a client about this kind of thing and say, hey, you know, what do you when the end of days comes, do you really want to have a satchel of gold? No. Well, okay, and that makes sense to them, right? And then the the reply comes back, well, it's a good investment, right? It works in, in an inverse relationship to the stock market. So I, I guess what I'm getting at, though, is, is that's not necessarily true. We feel it. We think it. But if we go over the charts for the last 50 years, I mean, gold, $700 an ounce in 1980, $700 an ounce in 2008. That's not a good investment, Right. Right. And certainly if you had the same timing that you would love to have in the stock market of, hey, I'm going to buy Apple today at 300 and sell it tomorrow or sell it three months from now at 350. If you could time the market like that with gold, yeah, well, any investment, you could do that. Why would you do it with an investment that has such a long track record of, of not so great average annual returns when you when you just look at a 10, 20, 30 year chart? So the last point you wanted to touch on here is treasuries, which I think is is interesting because treasuries are, again, one of those things that most people think are a very safe investment, right? This is a bond issued by the U.S. government, so it is backed by the full faith and confidence of our federal government. And it is something that denotes a very safe investment. Now, I like treasuries. I use treasuries. I think those those can be effective when again, put into place when it's aligned with somebody's goals, when it's aligned with somebody's time horizons, when it's aligned with somebody's risk tolerance, there's nothing wrong with treasuries, but you have to know, okay, safe, I'm talking about safety, safe relative to what? And what am I giving up? So what's that opportunity cost for having that safety? Right. I mean, treasuries are, are tricky. And I, I would argue that of the three that we talk about today, FDIC, gold, and treasuries. Treasuries are, in fact, to the definition of the word safety, the safest, right? On this big blue marble, as far as we know, they are the safest investment in the world. But interest rates are a consideration, inflation's a consideration, right? So you can have a safe investment, meaning that it's not going to go away or the U.S. government's not going to pay up, right? But if you're only getting 1% on that, and inflation is three and a half percent, you're losing money, right? So it's not really a, that safe unless you're in the wealth preservation phase of life and you just you just want to get, well, it, it, you know, again, it matters with the interest rates, right? 
Well, no, I think it, if my option is, hey, I got a million dollars and I can keep it at the bank and put a million dollars with XYZ bank down the street, mm-hmm. I got a million dollars I can put into a duffel bag and put it into my safe, or I got a million dollars and I can put it into treasuries, right? So I'm looking for safety and those those are kind of like my three options here. That's, that's what I'm considering as my safe options. What do you, you do? Know, well, I think that the concern is if the bank goes under, if there's right. instability in the financial markets, is my money insured? And what's the ability to access that? Because then I, I need it. I need to spend the capital to survive or live or to get out of the country, whatever you got to do, right? right? The benefit of having the money in my duffel bag in you know, my bedroom in a safe is I got immediate access and it's there. It's paper dollars. Right. The risk is what if my house burns down? What if I'm robbed? I'm always talking to people about that who keep large quantities of money on their persons in their household. It's like, yeah, I'm sure you got safes and guns and fireproof this and that. But like, I just think it's a pretty big risk. Sure. Right. You're on top of you earn nothing. Right. So well, depending on the amount. Right. Of course, I, I encourage people to, to have a, a nominal amount accessible. You know. I'm talking about a million dollars. You're, gonna, yeah. you're not going to tell anybody, I don't care how much money you have. You're, you're not Floyd Mayweather. Don't have a million dollars sitting in your... Did he have a million dollars? in? He carries a million dollars in a duffel bag everywhere, everywhere he goes. That's why he rolls with an entourage of like 30 people. Seriously? Yeah. Anyway, so That's not treasuries, <laughs> treasuries are both safe and presumably accessible because there's there's always going to be a marketplace to be able to transact, to sell that and to convert it back to cash and even if banks are failing, there's still a treasury market. Now, your securities may be worth less. If you need to convert your bonds into dollars before they're, they're traded, that, that could be worth less. We'll talk about that in another episode. But presumably, it's going to be pretty safe because you have the full faith and confidence of the, the federal government to be able to pay you back. Right. And, and, and juxtaposed to the FDIC, right? The treasuries are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is its own corporation and thankfully it's never had to been uh, it's never been called into play but that corporation is then backed by the government right. so so you know when i hear people have the the misconception that hey my my checking account has a million dollars in it and it's backed by the government no i mean you you're skipping a step here with 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 your perception of the safety of this investment and that's where I think the FDIC and treasuries differ. And I, I think that's where we're, we're kind of agreeing that treasuries a little bit more, little, little safer than FDIC insured deposits. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's what, it's literally what the banks are buying to bolster their balance sheets. Right. Right. You go and deposit money at a bank. What are the day? They go buy treasuries. Right. They Yeah. Of course they're lending it out and they're doing right. mortgages and other business, but they're buying treasuries. Right. And in a, in a twist, the FDIC tells the banks, if you're going to have FDIC insurance, you can buy X amount of treasuries, X amount of uh, duration of those treasuries, bills, notes, or, or the bonds, right? And you can uh, invest the depositor's money in X amount of percentage of mortgages. Uh, right, and, asset backed and, and other things, and, yeah. And investment grade bonds and so so, so land this plane, man. I mean, you know, the, the real question is, is it safe? So it's a, it's a relative term. Exactly. It's relative to your portfolio. It's relative to your feeling too. And, you know, again, the older I get, the more I, I really understand sometimes, you know, if you're getting 2% on a treasury and inflation's two and a half percent, you know, and if you got $2 million, 
and you just want to, you know, re- play some golf and, and be retired. Okay. You know, you're, yes, you're losing a half a percent. Here's the funny thing. Paper. As soon as you said that uh, again, I immediately go to, it's all relative. Right. $2 million may be good for your neighbor and maybe not enough money for you. Maybe sure. too much money for another person. Right. It's all relative. So right. in the conversation of, of safety, understand what is the safety you're really looking for? What is the most important part? What is going to give you peace of mind to be able to know that financial security for your future is intact? And conversely, don't mistake safety of any of these three investments that we talked about today. If it, if it feels safe, don't load the boat on it because then you're doing the antithesis of what you're trying to do. Meaning that if you decide, hey, you know what? Bill and Andrew said that treasuries are, are, are the safest investments that they know of. Disclaimer, I'm, that's not what we said, but. No, that's not what we said, right? I'm gonna put all my money into treasuries and call it a day, right? Right. That's not safe, right? So that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Join us every single Friday for a new episode of Dollars and Sensibility. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.